one does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep, and the great eye is ever watchful. Welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. I am joined today by your host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Arrestor, advisor to Elrond. And I am joined today by Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Galdor of the Havens. And we are joined by Chad High and Chan Borholt, a.k.a. the Chads from Texas, a.k.a. Eladan and Elrohir, sons of Elrond. Welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. So Chad and Chad host the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast, where in each episode they are joined by a different panel of Tolkien fans who lead the discussion on a Tolkien topic that they have selected. The podcast is really unique in that it doesn't really feature you guys. Uh, you're, you know, you participate in the discussions and, and lead the discussions, but it's really the the panel of fans that changes from week to week that leads the guides the discussion. And I got to say, I've really enjoyed your podcast. It's really unique and it stands alone among all the, the Tolkien podcasts in terms of its unique format. I think most Tolkien podcasts like ours have one or two hosts and they sit around and talk about Tolkien, which is great and we love doing it. But you do something different in that it's it's very uh, fan driven. It's very community driven. And it, it really feels like an oxen moot type of conference, but put into podcast form. I just want to commend you for thinking of that format because it really, among other things, it highlights how uniquely special the Tolkien fandom is. I mean, Tolkien fans are really second to none in terms of intelligence. I think, uh, you know, the, the level of conversation on your podcast is, is extremely high. I mean, one would think that just conversation driven by, by fans would maybe be, you know, not very interesting or not very intellectual, but it is very intellectual. You delve into deeply philosophical uh, concepts. A couple of episode titles here are uh, the double-edged chisel of creativity another episode titled Acts of Sacrifice. You get into you know heavy topics here, and I think it's a, a really great, unique podcast. How did you come to that format? And uh, can you tell us a, a little more about what's what you're doing on the podcast? So what I'll say first is this podcast is actually Chad High's idea, but the reason why is because years and years ago, some of my friends were telling me that I should start a podcast before the Prancing Pony came out. And so I was thinking, you know, I don't really have the time to do the prep for that. Now, I'm pretty much prepped all the time, but I don't have time to do prep for something like that. And uh, so I, I was thinking, no, I don't really have time with everything else that I do. And then Debbie Brazell in Dallas, she told me about them, and I started listening. I'm like, well, that's, that's perfect. I don't need to do a podcast. They've already done They've done a better job than what my idea would have been because basically I would have been doing the same thing, just not as good as what they do. And then uh, I was looking for a local Tolkien Society smile, and I found out that Chad High was the head of the Houston Tolkien Society, contacted him, and we have – seriously big big time fun on our uh, monthly smiles and at one point in time chad said we should uh we should do something like this where all these people who are enjoying talking about this can actually do it as a as a podcast so i'll let chad take it from there chad Warren kind of hit the nail on the head there i mean so chad and i had sort of been discussing creating a podcast and we kind of were we joked around for it uh we joked around with it for a little while but i think that it really got serious when i came to chad with an idea with the idea to recreate the smile meetings because when we had talked about starting a podcast before that we, we kind of ran into sort of well there's a lot of tolkien podcasts where two people kind of just get on and they talk with each other about tolkien and we didn't we, we couldn't think of anything different than any that anybody wasn't already doing. And uh, I can't remember if it was if it was Chad Bornhold or if it was me. One of us just sort of it, we had the epiphany of well we should try to recreate these smile meetings. Um, we were just talking one day. We were chatting online and the it, it, it kind of we took it and we kind of ran from there. It comes in handy that Chad is a teacher and so he deals with 
doing stuff like this more often than what I do, but I'm an audio editing person from years and years ago when I was doing music a whole lot. So when we started talking about that, I was like, yeah, I can do the audio editing very easily. And Chad started talking about making a website and all that kind of stuff. So basically it kind of lined out pretty easily as soon as we decided what we were going to do. And since we're saying this on your podcast, anyone who is listening to this that is first hearing the fact that you can come on a podcast and be a guest, we want as many people as possible to come on this thing. It, the more the merrier. It's, it's really fun. You get uh, there's There'll be three or four people besides us. The only thing we really do is introduce you and answer whenever you say something. And it doesn't have to be these really complex things like what you sometimes hear on there. It can be basic stuff that, especially if even if those people who don't really know the books at all, they could come in there and and talk about the movies and we would do like what we're doing right here. Well, it is such a pleasure to listen to. So I'm glad you guys decided to jump in and pull the trigger on it and um and yeah we're grateful and i'm sure a lot of our listeners if you if you haven't go check it out now um well we do talk a lot about amazon the amazon adaptation on the show the upcoming adaptation of lord of the rings so before we get into our main discussion the council of elrond we'd like to get your thoughts on two things so to both of you number one what do you most hope to see uh, out of the new show, it could be a character, a plot line, a theme, anything. So I'll I'll kind of go first on that. Like every Tolkien fan, like every self-respecting Tolkien fan, I've thought a lot about the new Amazon adaptation of the Second Age. So the the thing about the thing about the new Amazon adaptation of the Second Age is there's going to have to be a lot of world building. There's going to have to be a lot of narrative writing that doesn't come from Tolkien because as we know, Tolkien wrote very little about the second age. We have one real narrative story that's unfinished, the, the you know, the tale of Aldarian and Arendis. So what I would like to see, the thing that I hope is most going to happen with the new Amazon show, is I would like to see narrative writing that feels like it's coming from Tolkien. I want to feel like as I'm watching the show, I want to feel like I am getting something that I am missing from the frame narrative. Because as we know, a lot of what's explained of missing material within the Legendarium comes from our understanding of Tolkien's setting up of the frame narrative and how uh, Tolkien's Legendarium, Tolkien's subcreated world, um, it comes down to us from writings from the past and like real historical ancient text fragments are missing so what i would like to see and i hope i hope so i'm not counting on it but what i would like to see is that i feel like some of these things that i as you read through the books some of this text that is missing and you would love to see uh, you would love to read about you're getting that coming to you on uh, through the show so that's my that's like my highest aspirational hope I share that hope as well. Obviously, it's really tough to um, do a Tolkien impression when it comes to writing. I mean, he was a very unique author in his ability to write in a very specific writing style that not many other authors, even at the time, had the ability to do. Um, and now certainly there, there are fewer who could do an effective impression, if any. So I'm sure no one will be able to do what Tolkien did, but I hope that they will try, that they will recognize the issue that you have identified and, and, and strive for that. Um, well, let's, let's stick with you. And, and the second half of our question was, um, so we asked sort of what your greatest hope is. What is your greatest fear? And, you know, we're not negative, negative Nancy's on this podcast. We're not doomsayers. You know, we, we try to have a good attitude about any effort to adapt Tolkien. Um, you know, if, it, if it's not great, you know, oh, well, we still have the books. So we're very positive in general, but we recognize that a lot of people are very protective, as are we, about Tolkien and want to see it done right, especially in an adaptation that's going to reach a lot of audiences, a lot of fans that may discover Tolkien the first way for the first time through the adaptation. So um, a lot of people have some fears or concerns. So if you have any fears, what is your number one fear? Well, I guess I guess my, my greatest fear, I guess, about the new Amazon adaptation is that it's going to be more of what we got 
from the Hobbit trilogy, not not specifically the the first film of the trilogy, but the um, more of like it's going to be more of the tone of, for example, the last half of the the third Hobbit film, the Battle of the Five Armies. Most, it, it, I mean, I I was reading something about it the other day. Actually, I was reading an article about the Battle of the Five Armies. I don't know why. I must have must have had some time to kill. Um, <laughs> but the really, if you if you look at the last sort of hour of the Battle of the Five Armies. There's not really a lot happens, a lot of action. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of really well done battle scenes by Weta Workshop. There's a lot of really spectacular things that happen on screen, but there's no real storytelling. Like no, nothing really happens to advance the story at all. It's a lot of really drawn out, really cool special effects, but there's not a whole lot of substance. You don't, you don't, there's not a whole lot of dialogue or scenes that really evoke any sort of emotional response so if i have a greatest fear of the for the new amazon series is that it's it looks really good there's a lot of spectacular special effects but i just don't i don't care about the characters that would be i guess that would be my greatest fear chad i'm totally with you i'm i'm a person who is really vocal about what a flop i think the hobbit films were and and I, I completely agree. If you get too carried away with the special effects and and you lose the story, I think you have a big problem. So that's I totally second that. That is also one of my worst fears. Yeah, the, the special effects and the action needs to serve the themes and the characters and the plot, not the other way around. You know, the, a movie should and a plot shouldn't just be a special effects delivery vehicle, <laughs> you know? So, um, uh, and actually this is a bit of a digression. Jen's going to kill me because I always do this sort of thing, but you know, with the new matrix film coming out, I've been thinking about thinking back on the old matrix films and why I'm wondering why the original matrix was such an amazing achievement, you know, filmmaking achievement. And whereas the second two, which I still liked, but just did not rise to that level, you know, what made the first so great and the others not quite so much. And I think that the first Matrix film, there's a lot of action. I mean, these are action films, but all of the scenes with action, there's a lot of character development and plot development going on. All the action, you know what characters' motivations are, you know what's at stake. There's tension that that occurs. Whereas in the second two Matrix films, there are long action scenes that do nothing other than show off action. There, there's no character development or plot occurring whatsoever. It's just like, let's pause the movie and then have a five minute action sequence and then we can resume the movie. And um, I think the second two films suffered from that. And the Hobbit films ramped that to 11, um, I, I think. Uh, so I, I, that is a fear of mine as well. And I, you know, Tolkien didn't care about action, so neither do I. Um, so I hope that the show... Which will the show will certainly have more action than the books did, and I'm okay with that a little bit. But I just want th- that action to serve the larger themes and character development. And just real quick, if there's a if there's a second thing that I a second fear that I have with the show is that they're going to explain every single thing to me. Like they won't let me imagine anything from myself um, because that's one of the that's one of the greatest successes of the Lord of the Rings. And the Silmarillion, people forget about that too. The Silmarillion lets you imagine a lot of things too. Is um, I don't need to see the wereworms that Bilbo <laughs> references in the first chapter of The Hobbit. I can imagine those as whether they're real or not. I don't need to know that they're real. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like I don't need to see everything. Let let me imagine some things. Sure, and I think Peter Jackson actually did a really good job of that. Like didn't depict every single thing and. And in the Lord of the Rings. Still, yes, in the Lord of the Rings. And I think still people, for example, that I know who have not read the books, they're not sitting around agonizing over all the back history of all of this. And wait a minute, why? what's the origin of this, this, and this? Like, as you said, it's okay to leave a lot to the imagination and people will fill in the gaps. Yeah, not, not every question needs to be answered in a film or in a story. And in fact, it's often the unanswered questions that create the depth that makes a story so enjoyable. So Chad, Chad Bornholt, same two questions to you. Greatest hope, greatest fear for the upcoming adaptation. I like the way y'all are, y'all are, what y'all are mentioning is basically textual ruins on a film. Y'all have heard the whole, y'all have heard the textual ruins concept that from Michael right. Drought, where you've got, 
you've got um, stuff that used to be complete, and now it's incomplete, and you only get to see this decompleted version of it. It was complete. It's not incomplete. It's actually decompleted. <laughs> it, it's pulled back apart, and you only see a part of it. It's it's kind of like seeing the book of Mazarbul. You know, you you see that we cannot get out. You don't really get to see the first day that they started rebuilding Moria. So you could, if you could look and see that, you could say, wow, they were making some progress here before things went awry. So what I'm looking forward to on the Amazon thing, first of all, I may not even need to say this. The thing I'm looking forward to the most is new book readers. That's number one on my list for anything and everything. Amen, any, brother. Amen. <laughs> anything that has anything to do with talking, it could be something that is completely stupid and doesn't make any sense lore-wise, canon-wise. And if it makes someone read the book, that's the most important thing of all. Because when you when you get to reading the book, it's a different world. It cha- it basically changes you because I was never really a reader for fun. I read for work and I read because I had to. And when I started reading these books, it's it still is really the only thing I enjoy reading a whole lot. And I actually started reading the books because I heard there was going to be a movie. I realized afterwards that I'd already seen those cartoons years and years ago, but I, I read the books because I wanted to know it before I saw the movie because it looked so – it's the only time that I saw a trailer – and the trailer made me think, I got to read that. <laughs> and so, uh, so what I'm looking forward to the most is that. Second most is, um, since it is still Lord of the Rings, I am going to, and even though we saw that still shot that looked like we were probably on RSA or somewhere like that, you could see the trees in the background or something like that. And they're saying that that's, Finrod or somebody like that. I don't. I don't. So a lot of these things that come out, they're misleading. So I don't really put a whole bunch of uh, faith into what we're seeing as as the spoilers. But since it is Lord of the Rings, I'm assuming that that shot that we saw is probably going to be inevitably a, a flashback because it's mm-hmm. it's so long ago. I am looking forward to and imagining that they will begin probably somewhere along the lines of the time that Austin Edil in Eregion is really flourishing and Anatar comes along, which is really Sauron in disguise and, you know, tells them, Hey, I can make this place just as beautiful as Valinor, Amon, and he teaches them how to do these rings. I would imagine it's gonna start somewhere along in there with the with it's probably going to establish that Austin Edil is doing well. I don't know if you're going to see Gilgalad at Mithlond or not, but the whole Numenorian thing, I, I really, really hope that the very last episode of whatever season they end up going to, if they reconvene and decide whatever, I, I really hope that the very last season and the and the finality of the entire thing shows Elendil with the Elendilmir and Narsil and the Ring of Barahir and they're loading the Palantirs in the nine ships and seven of the ships have stars on their banners on their sails. I'm hoping we get to see all that and and they're and they're sailing away and pretending that they're going west when they're really going east and then seeing the cataclysm where the where the sea opens and swallows Numenor. I, I just I hope it ends that way where you you actually get to see and then even if they can kind of make the actors look like the PJ actors, where people who don't know it that well, at least they recognize those guys and they go, Oh, okay, that's that guy, you know? But then you'd have all these tie-ins because you'd see like I said, you'd see the ring about here and the sword and all the palantir, and you would you would start to you put two put two and two together for a whole lot of things and realize what's going on. That's that's what I look forward to the most. Um, as far as what I look forward to the least, or what I fear the most, you guys kind of already nailed it. I mean, the thing that I dislike there's there's 
there's not a whole lot of it that I dislike. And even when I say that I do dislike it, I don't really care. It sounds like I do, but it's not like it bothers me like what you see a whole bunch of people acting like it does online. I just don't like when they forego canon literature and don't put it into the story. In lieu of that, they put something that is not non-canon, but it's anti-canon. I don't mind they're making stuff up from scratch that could possibly be in the story, but I don't like it when they avoid putting things that are in the story in there, and instead they put something in there that is against the story. It's exactly mm-hmm. the opposite right. of what Tolkien wrote. Right, it's unnecessary. Well, not even. I'm talking about further than unnecessary. I'm talking about yeah. like where Tolkien says this does not happen, egregious, right. and it's in there. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> well, and you know, for an adaptation of the Second Age, where we have so little canon material to work with in the first place, you know, just keep what you got. You know, don't discard the the few stories or the little canon that we have to to put in something that we know is not part of the canon. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, see the thing about the second age is that it, it's, it's just like you said, Michael, there's not, there's not a whole lot of narrative canon material to work with, but what the writers do have to work with. And what I think Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh did really well for the first adapt their first round of adaptation, not so well, but the second round of adaptation was they stuck to Tolkien's fundamental laws of his subcreated world very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. in the the Hobbit trilogy, that kind of got away from a lot of that. Uh, Tolkien does have these these fundamental truths that he lays out for all all of the ages of of Arda, and so as, if they stick to that, they should be okay. Like if they stick to that bl- that blueprint, they should be okay. Like what Chad Warren was talking about, where uh, in some of the Tolkien adaptations, you see well. It happens one way on screen, and you're thinking, well, that does not happen. That's not allowed to happen in Tolkien's Legendarium. And so you, what you don't want to see is you don't want to see that. But the thing we have to remember, too, is that we have to brace ourselves to see some of this stuff because the writers at Amazon, they're not writing the show for people like us. They're writing it for general a general audience. They want to bring in as many people as they possibly can. They don't. They know that we're going to watch. They they know they got us with right. the, with the show. So they're not thinking about us. They're thinking about how can we bring in as many of a general audience that we can. And they picked up. They picked a really difficult uh, part of Tolkien's Legend Arm to interpret. Numenor is very, is going to be very difficult to make look like Tolkien wanted it to look. I think that they're going to have to. If they know what they're doing, then they they went really really deep into into they hopefully they use Tolkien's letters about what he said about Numenor, and they use Wayne Hammond and Christina Cole's companion and guide to yeah. research what Tolkien yeah. wrote about Numenor because Tolkien tells us that the Numenorians they resemble Greco-Roman. Egyptian sort of Mediterranean culture. And I don't know if we're going to get that. And that's, that's what, and if you look at what Tolkien had in his mind for Numenor, that's what he envisioned the Numenorians looking like. And I'm not quite sure we're going to get that. I hope we do, but I'm, I'm not sure. I believe that it, w- it will be really good to see, especially the part. So the Aldarion and Erendis story would be really good on there, but it's too far too too early early. it's it's a long time ago but even if they did that like as a uh you know as a as a a flashback like they're like the tree thing is because when gilgalad sent that letter through aldarion to give to his dad that's a really good good spot where where gilgalad basically explains to uh, to aldarion's dad and wife (laughs) you know like this is why he's been gone there's something going on over here. We don't know what it is, but it's evil. And it would be really good. And besides besides the fact that it's so long beforehand, it's way, way too early. Mm-hmm. It would uh it would be it's a really sad story and it would it would speak to a much bigger audience than than just making something up. It could be. It would be, it would be a really good candidate for a spinoff show, like a yeah. separate from the series, I think. Yeah, we've said that many times that we'd like to see that story. Uh, we covered that on the podcast. We'd like to see that story as its own 
series. If you're enjoying Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, you really should check out our Wheel of Time podcast hosted by Rourke Garmston. Rourke is a Wheel of Time expert and each week breaks down the latest episode from Amazon's adaptation of The Wheel of Time with a panel of brilliant and funny guests who have never read the books. If you've already read The Wheel of Time books, this podcast will be fun for you because you'll get to experience the show through the eyes of first-timers. And if you're new to The Wheel of Time universe yourself, then Watch Party Wheel of Time is really perfect because there are no spoilers. That's right, Watch Party Wheel of Time gives you spoiler-free analysis and discussion of each episode. Check it out today, available on every major podcasting platform. Watch Party Wheel of Time. Thank you both for your thoughts and weighing in. And without further ado, I think we're going to dive into our main discussion. So today we're talking about the Fellowship of the Ring from one hour and 24 minutes to one hour and 45 minutes and 37 seconds, which effectively corresponds to the chapter's many meetings and the Council of Elrond in the book. So usually we start these episodes by having our guests attempt to summarize the entire plot in one breath, but given that the Council of Elrond is the longest chapter in the novel, we thought we'd spare you this time, so you guys dodged a (laughs) bullet. Um, Plus, we have something very special planned for both of you chads and you listeners at the end that will make up for it. And in anticipation of that, let me ask you both. So one of you has to be Frodo and one of you has to be Butterbur, Barlam and Butterbur. I think I, my voice lends my, me to be Butterbur a little better than what Chad's does. It would be better for Chad to be Frodo and me, for me to be Butterbur. I sound a little more, I sound a little more like a hick than he does. I can, I can, I can be Frodo. That's, that's fine with me. <laughs> All right. Well, one or more of you may um, rue that decision, but uh, you'll have to wait till the, the end of the podcast to, <laughs> to find out. Um, when we do this analysis and this discussion, you know, our fans know that we go scene by scene. One of us will describe the scene that we're going to talk about, and then we're just going to go into it and talk about the, uh, point out the differences, the themes, uh, the character motivations, everything that's going on in that scene. But before we get into that, I, I kind of want to set the table for broadly for the discussion a little bit. Uh, the Council of Elrond scenes contain the most significant changes from the book that we've encountered so far, setting aside the omission of Tom Bombadil. Up until this point, the the although there are many minor changes or relatively minor changes, the film has more or less followed the book. But we see a lot of changes here in the Council of Elrond, and I think that, and we'll get into and talk about the specific changes when we uh, get into their specific scenes. But I think a lot of the changes can be attributed to to a broader uh, change that that Jackson is trying to accomplish um, in the book. Until the Council of Elrond, the narrative has effectively stuck with Frodo. So the audience only knows what he knows. For example, we don't know what's happening with Gandalf. Uh, We only know that he didn't show up at the uh, appointed time to go with Frodo. So Frodo's confused. We don't know much about the Black Riders. Uh, We know very little about the broader world. And so we often feel lost and confused about what is happening and what decisions need to be made, uh, which is much like how Frodo feels. And that's that was deliberate by Tolkien in the way that he drafted these early chapters. Against that backdrop, Frodo's arrival at Rivendell in the books and the Council of Elrond serves an important narrative function, I think, which is to reset the plot and connect all of our main characters and to provide a lot of exposition to tell the audience what has been going on to Gandalf and to other characters in the broader world. Uh, It's literally an entire chapter that explains what the stakes are what needs to be done and what everyone else has been doing. So it connects a lot of threads that have been going on in the background that the readers may have been confused about. The film approaches the narrative a little differently. We've talked about this in the podcast um, many times before and that Jackson depicts everything chronologically. So for example, in the film, we do see what was happening to Gandalf. We were never confused. We always knew that he was captured by Saruman. So we don't need the council of Elrond to tell us that we don't need to get that information from a board meeting. Uh, So since exposition is not necessary in film, Jackson devotes more time in the Council of Elrond scenes and in other scenes that occur around it, some of which are invented, to set up Aragorn's relationships with Boromir and Arwen, which operates to more firmly establish Aragorn's motives in the film, the sources of his internal and external conflict. And by placing more emphasis on Aragorn in these early scenes, 
Jackson is laying the groundwork for a broader change in the films, which is to place more emphasis on him as a main character. And we also, I think, see just more emphasis on the emotional connections between characters, whereas in the book, Tolkien is connecting threads. In the film, those threads have already been connected, so Jackson spends that time connecting our characters emotionally and elevating Aragorn in the plot. So that's sort of my thought as to what's been going on broadly in these scenes. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. I think this is a really smart decision on Peter, on Jackson's part and the, and the script writers, because it once, first of all, it's a different medium. It's a film. And in this shorter amount of time that you have, we need to latch on to our hero figure or our anti-hero or our, whoever and establishing Aragorn as somebody who is a main character who's conflicted who's we think is probably going to emerge as the hero early on is smart and we suddenly feel invested in him as a character right because we're seeing his background his connection to Arwen his connection to Boromir or his rivalry with Boromir rather and so I I don't mind the changes at all I think it was necessary um, because it's a film medium and smart, definitely a smart choice. Yeah, so I, I guess just to kind of echo what what y'all have said about the the changes that are made uh, to these these two sort of chapters um, in the as you as you get to them in the book. I, before I'd like to say first that book one of the Lord of the Rings is my favorite book of of all six books. I think I'm kind of in the minority. Like when you see those polls, like book one's almost never. Uh, the, the, and it almost never gets the, the most votes for favor, but book one was always my favorite. Um, so, but the, these two opening chapters of book two are, are, are fantastic. One of the things that I think, uh, Jackson does is, is he basically throws out most of the chapter of many meetings. If you, if you read yep. through the chapter of many meetings, most of that is just totally thrown out. Um, you get, you get, um, like I think Jen said, you get invented scenes, as to how the characters are sort of interacting with one another, you get the, you get that really good scene with Gandalf and, and Elrond where Elrond says the age of, um, or where he says men are weak, you know, that, that sort of scene that's not from the books, but it's a really good scene for film. Um, and that's all, all that kind of takes place of the mini meetings chapter. So you don't really get, which is a shame because you don't get a, you have uh, Bilbo's Bilbo's role is kind of like, really, really downplayed. I mean, Bilbo gets a lot of page time when, in these chapters and he gets almost no sort of screen time except the except for that scene where he's going to come and kill you, where he's going to come haunt you at night. Uh, <laughs> that's really his big sort of like screen time with the within this, but he gets a lot of, of, of page time in the books. He, he gives you the uh, he gives you the the poem of Arendil, right, which is one of yeah. Tony's, that's one of the greatest poems ever written, bar none. Any, I would put that up against any poem ever written by anybody. Agreed. And you, it's not that you miss these things in the film because I mean, really, if you think about it, how would you, how would you put something like that into the into the Jackson films? I mean, so the changes that Jackson makes with the mini meetings chapter are, I think that they're probably necessary for the medium, like like y'all have said. But it, it's tough as somebody who loves the books and who has, has read the books multiple times. It's tough to see those go um, in the uh, in the uh, in the films. Now, in terms of the the Council of Elrond itself, it's a lot shorter than the yeah. than the than the books. It's you miss all of the all of the background information that you get about the first age. You 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 don't. You really get a sense of how old Elrond is when you read the uh, uh, when you read the, the book. You get all of these details about all the things that Elrond has seen, and all the thing you get all of these uh, uh, interesting tidbits about what Elrond has done. And in the films, you get um, "I was there three thousand years ago." That's really all you get um, yeah. in terms of knowing how old Elrond is. So it, you just you miss a lot of the a lot of the, the the meat that you get with the books, but like y'all have said, a lot of that stuff is probably pulled because you just can't you you can't do that within within the film medium and keep it you know keep the runtime down. And, and really, some how of that, would you? Some of that meat was relocated into the prologue, right? Ed? And, and oh. some some of it is relocated into the prologue, exactly. And you know the the 
the Council of Elrond is really like a, it's really like a committee meeting. Everybody gets their their you know Elrond kind of sits down and he says, okay, now now we're going to hear from this person and now we're going to hear from this person and people do interject back and forth, but there's not with the Jackson films you get a lot more conflict at the Council of Elrond. There's a yeah. lot more argumentative conflict going on. There's a lot more drama at the Council of Elrond than there is in the film in the books. In the books there is a little bit of drama when they start to talk about well what are we going to do with the ring. That's when the real drama starts to happen. But beforehand, it's it, Tolkien's giving us a lot of background information. And he's, he's really setting us up to take that next step out of out of book one and really into the wider world, into book two. And he's using the Council of Elrond to introduce all of these different new voices. And I, what I think Jackson's doing with the Council of Elrond is he's showing us that, hey, there's a lot of conflict. And are these characters going to be able to come together? In addition to positioning Aragorn as uh, our 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 main protagonist and positioning Aragorn to show us that mm, he's not sure if he's ready yet, which is a, which, as we know, is a total change from the books because yeah. Aragorn never doubts himself at all in the books. But in the films, this is this is still Aragorn, sort of like he doesn't know if he's ready to challenge Boromir because Boromir really insults him several times in in the film, and he doesn't sort of like challenge him because. You see Aragorn sort of, sort of finding himself. In the book, he's already found himself. But in, in the films, Jackson's using us to show us this conflict between the free peoples of Middle-earth juxtaposed with uh, our, you know, our main protagonist is still sort of like in his, in his self-discovery phase, I guess. Right. I think since we're already getting into a lot of specifics, we should just dive into the scenes. So I am going to start with a summary of the Rivendell scene. Our first glance of Rivendell. So after Arwen says her prayer to the Valar, the screen goes white and a scene of Rivendell appears hazily, followed by Frodo's floating body and Elrond's head speaking Elvish, presumably to Frodo, as he is treated in Rivendell. So the camera is sort of moving slowly. It's sort of in and out of focus. And the screen once again goes dark as Frodo wakes to find Gandalf at his bedside. Gandalf informs him he is in the house of Elrond and it is 10 o'clock in the morning. Gandalf. Yes, I'm here. He says Frodo is lucky to be alive and that he has some strength in him. A few more hours and he would have been beyond our aid. Frodo asks why Gandalf didn't meet them. Oh, I'm sorry, Frodo. I was delayed. And the scene cuts back to Saruman tormenting Gandalf at the top of Isengard. attempting to persuade him once again to join forces. Gandalf responds that there is only one who can bend the ring to his will. And he does not share power. As a familiar moth flutters in the background, Gandalf jumps off the tower dramatically onto the back of a giant eagle, delivering a final rejection of Saruman's offer. And then we cut back to Rivendell, where Sam bursts into the room, excited to see that Frodo has awakened. Frodo! Sam! Bless you, you're awake! <laughs> Sam has hardly left your side. And, and Elrond enters at this time and welcomes Frodo to Rivendell. Welcome to Rivendell, Frodo Baggins. So thoughts on this scene? Well... <laughs> We touched on this in the, in the last episode, but the the beginning of this scene, the transition from um, Frodo collapsing and almost dying uh, at the, the at the Fords to to waking up in Rivendell, that weird like floating head. It's one of the rare misses uh, by Peter Jackson when it comes to the visuals. In it the doesn't film. work. It doesn't work for me. I mean, I don't know. I've never met somebody who likes it. Maybe <laughs> Chad's. If you one of you like it, you know, uh, cut me off. But. I just think it's one of the the rare, really goofy scenes in terms of the camera work and all that. It it, it strikes me as like a B movie in in terms of uh, production. So I'm usually not critical of Jackson. I think he usually hits that stuff out of the park. But um, that that's a that's a miss for me. So I always kind of just like close my eyes and pretend it's not happening, and uh, and then get to the next scene, which is actually very good. So it's odd that you that you say that because I've never I haven't ever really thought about whether or not I like that or not. But um, as far as what they're doing. I haven't thought about what it looks like or anything like that, but as far as what they're doing, I think that's the kind of thing they should do with the parts of the story that they don't want to put into the film that need to be there. Like, like the things that they would cut out that all of us book 
purists are going to gripe about. If they put little things like that in there, now granted, I know what you're saying. You're saying you didn't like the way it looked and how it's kind of it's like a it's like a collage almost of yeah. of a bunch of different stuff. So, <laughs> but but the what they're actually doing it prevents their having to film the fact that Elrond was working on him because right. he had been there a few days already, and it, Gandalf tells him that Elrond has been working on you for a few days now. You had the tip of the blade in you for 17 days, and you've been here three, th uh, four nights and three days, and last night he found the tip of the sword and got it out. And you're getting well miraculously. So in in this little short little montage that looks weird and <laughs> looks like the floating head thing like you're talking about, it, at the very least, if they would have said, you know, I worked on you or, you know, something like that, you know, <laughs> then they could do that. But something else I noticed, and right before Chad High uh, comes in here, in the book, it actually says when he wakes up, Frodo has a new chain on. In the movie, until this point, there has been no chain. But as he wakes up and Gandalf says, Good catch. It's 10 a.m. on October the 24th. It's, he has a silver chain with a necklace, with, the, with a, the ring around it. So that would be the 10th person that touches the ring if you count everyone else. Because Gandalf does touch the ring twice in close succession in Bag End when he's telling Frodo what's going on. But here's the thing I did notice when I was watching this for the first time in a long time. And that is that when Gandalf says, I'm sorry, I was delayed... Then you see this whole wizard thing, which I really did not like that, but I get what they're doing. But then the moth comes and oh, whatever, and then <laughs> the moth thing kind of screws up the story about why Gwaihir was there. But afterwards, whenever he's done and it comes back to Gandalf in Frodo's room, Frodo says, what's wrong or something like that. And it kind of gives you the idea that all of this flashback that you just saw of Gandalf on top of Lorthanc and the moth and Gwaihir coming along and, and Christopher Lee saying, so you have chosen death. It gives you the idea, and I never thought about this until when I was watching it again for this episode here, that the flashback we just saw, Frodo did, Gandalf did not explain that to him because – Otherwise, Frodo would not have reacted that way after the flashback ended. Right. Oh, yeah. It's a question mark. Did he tell him or not? He did. Yeah. <laughs> he right. did. Yeah. I think it's, it yeah, like it's he all did. in his. Yeah. He's remembering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet, yet once the council starts, they don't bring it up to everybody mm. else. But you have to assume that he did. In the book, it tells you that he did, you know. So it's a little odd. I always like when I was watching it before, I always just, you know, pictured as though what we're seeing in this flashback is assumed to be put into words by Gandalf to Frodo while he's laying in bed. And now I don't believe that's the case. Yeah, I think, uh, and then I'll get to you, Chad. I think that uh, Gandalf probably circulated a pre-meeting memo just to make sure everybody uh, had the information so that when we see the outside council, they can get right into business, you know. He did a reply all. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chad, hi, you have something to say. Yeah, it's it's um it's interesting that y'all y'all bring that up because I was I was actually going to to speak on that just real quickly. I, I always thought that um, Gandalf didn't tell Frodo any of what happened between him and Saruman. I I always felt it was just a flashback that we're seeing for the audience, but not for Frodo because um this is one of I think Ian McKellen's really well delivered lines, uh, one of many, but this is this is a really really well delivered line where. Um, he's still Gandalf at this point is not sure that Frodo is going to continue on to Mordor, right? Frodo hasn't volunteered to go to Mordor yet. And so Gandalf doesn't quite know what to reveal to the hobbits yet. And he doesn't, he, he still is sort of like deciding what to keep from them and what to reveal to them. Cause he doesn't know whether they're going to keep going or not. And when Frodo asks, uh, Gandalf, he says, why didn't you meet me? And, and, Ian McKellen really, really well. He says, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I was delayed, but he, he says it, says it really, really well. Like, like, you yeah. know, that there's something there that he, 
it's it's almost painful for him to say that he was delayed, right? And and you can feel that pain as McKellen delivers that line. It's really, really well done. Um, and it's like I also, he's protective. He's being yeah, protective of Frodo, which we see a lot. It's it's that painful. It's like when a parent is protecting a child, you know, but it's painful for them to to not reveal something. That's what it always feels like to me. It's very emotional for me to see that scene. And as we know in the in the book, the count the 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 hobbits stay at Rivendell is 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 a very they stay for very they stay for many days, right? They stay right. for over over a month. And in the film, uh, everything is fast forward. And this is this is not just with this part of the film, but everything happens almost instantaneously. It's one after the other, boom, 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 boom. And this is the beginning of the 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 feeling that you get that the the hobbits are only at Rivendell for you know a few hours if not a few days and it's in the book they're there much longer the the rest and recovery that they use Rivendell for it lasts a much longer time than uh than in the films and this this is the film doesn't give you doesn't give you that that sense of longevity there Chad Bordenhold I want to touch on something that you brought up which is that the the ring was placed on a chain while Frodo was asleep that actually always bothered me in the books it bothered me the idea that maybe we in our headcanon can fill in the gaps, but it's totally unaddressed as if it's no big deal that while Frodo's asleep, an elf or somebody put their hands on the ring, took possession of it. Maybe possession is not the right word, but they had it in their physical grasp and they're moving it around and handing it off to somebody else. Um, anytime someone is within the proximity of the ring, there's, there's significant temptation. And, you know, we see that when, Gandalf has the option to take it when, when Frodo offers it to him, when Frodo offers it to Galadriel. These are not, uh, these are significant moments where they are tempted and they have to make a decision of what to do with it. And so did Elrond take it off him? I mean, if Elrond had his hands on the ring, that would be a moment of temptation. Was it some lower elf? Would you trust some random elf with the ring of power? Um, it, it always kind of bothered me that that just sort of happened. Um, and there was no exploration of, of how that could occur. And it's not really, it's not really important, I suppose. Um, but I, that always sort of stuck in my craw a little bit. And uh, I'm, I'm always curious if anybody else noticed that. So what I always imagine is that it was probably Gandalf again, because it, who is at Rivendell that is powerful enough where Gandalf is not going to be worried about them touching it. There's really only three people there who, who you who Gandalf knows? Okay, these three people they can resist it. Me, Elrond, and Glorfindel. There's that's pretty much it. We would hope at this point in time that Aragorn could, and I wouldn't really trust anybody else around it. So in the back of my head, when I read that, I imagine that the ring. So in the book, the ring was on a chain. It's not like the movie. The movie's in his pocket. But in the book, the ring was on a chain, and then while he was sick and passed out, almost comatose is what we would call it, the chain is removed and a new chain is put on. It is very possible that the ring wasn't taken off of his chest, but you know you have to imagine it was. But I would imagine that either Gandalf got a new chain put on it, or Elrond put a new chain on it or Glorfindel, or maybe even Sam. I mean, it it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal to me, but you would have to imagine that Gandalf is not going to let just anybody do it, and I kind of think it had to be him. He had already touched it twice, right. and, and, and when he touched it, it's not like he was tempted then, and he knew, well, he didn't know. He was almost 100% certain when he did touch it, He's like, I'm throwing this in the fire because this is the one ring. I'm going to prove to you it's the one ring. He, with his hand, bare hand, threw it in the fire. It got, when he's in the fire, Frodo freaks out. Frodo can't yeah. hurt the ring. Frodo, Gandalf notices that Frodo can't hurt the ring right then. So this whole story, right. <laughs> Gandalf already knows he can't hurt the ring. So then afterwards, Gandalf grabs the tongs, sticks the tongs in the fire, so he doesn't burn his hand with the fire, pulls the ring out, sets it on the hearth, puts the tongs down, picks the ring up with his hand again, and puts it in Frodo's hand. So Gandalf actually handled it twice. What's one more time to put a new chain on it? Sure. 
Oh, I was just going to mention one last thing before we move on. My favorite thing about this scene actually is when the way that Gandalf is resisting the pressure to join under torture and how he zings. I love how he zings Saruman at the end with there's only one and he does not share power and then jumps on the eagle's back. I think that's a great scene. It's dramatic, but it really works for me. Visually amazing. Yeah. It's such a power move. Power moves only for Gandalf. Yeah, I I like it. I'm into it. Yeah, 15-year-old me in the theater was just like pumping uh, pumping my fist. I was like, yeah, Gandalf, right needles. (laughs) That's right. Uh, You know, it it was a change. They got rid of Radagast. The whole plot reason why uh, Gwaihir is is there is totally changed. Now it's, you know, a moth that he's talking to. So um, Jeb Bornholt sounds like he didn't like that too much. I, I I think I did like it a little bit because... The whole idea of being able to talk to animals, it, it kept sort of the heart of Radagast a little bit there. Um, and it's just kind of, there's a mythological element that's conveyed in in that moment where Gandalf's whispering to the moth that I really kind of enjoy. But um, Well, it's part, of, uh, it's part of Jackson's, Jackson and um, Jackson and Walsh, I think, made a, a decision early on that they're going, they were going to cut out some of these characters like Radagast and Gorfindel and and brand and characters like that like they for a hollywood movie you have to you have to focus on three or four main protagonist characters and and these other characters it doesn't you can't you can't afford to give them screen time and so they had to figure out a way i i think they probably had to figure out a way for the for Gwyer to come to gandalf without radigan you know without the sort of radigas device so that was what they right what they came up with. but, there, it, but there it does are... it works well there are tons of characters in the films as it is, you know, even after they cut out Radagast and Glorfindel mm-hmm. and Arrestor and there's still a lot of characters to keep track of. I mean, it is a big fat movie. So, um, and Lord of the Rings is just has a lot of characters to keep track of. That's why it's such a great read is because there are so many characters and there are so many things that you miss on a first, second or third read that characters do. It's one of the things that keeps, I think reader keeps me coming back and keeps readers right. coming back is the, the number of, of fleshed out characters within Lord of the Rings. The thing I didn't like about the moth is it kind of reminds me of that Carrie Poppins uh, scene in the new Star Wars movies where, where it's something that's impossible. That moth cannot <laughs> in time. There's no way that moth can fly at light speed, get over to the Eries of the Eagles, <laughs> which the Eagles were in Mirkwood at the time because, because Radagast went over there to talk to Thranduil's people and told them and all the animals, hey, Gandalf said that he and Saruman are going to be figuring out what to do, so we need to bring them any news we figure out. So the whole reason why here is there is because Saruman left a hitch in his plan. Not He, he did not want to let Radagast in on it because Radagast is a good guy. And so because he did that, Radagast did, had no reason to not tell Gandalf or not do what Gandalf said. So when Gandalf says, Hey, if y'all find out anything, send the news to me and Saruman. We're going to be figuring out what to do over here. Well, then why here shows up with the best of intentions, not realizing that Saruman's a traitor and then sees it. And he's there in perfect time. Whereas that moth thing, it kind of, it removes the other people helping the story. And I understand what you're saying as far as the fact that it would bring too many more characters into it. And you have to explain who these characters are and all that kind of stuff. But it's just, it, you lose a little bit of that factor when, when you have, and and besides the fact that a moth can't travel that fast, you know? Yeah. That's, that's a good point that I never thought about. Maybe, okay. Maybe the moth flutters down from more think, and there's a bird really nearby. And he tells the bird and then the bird flies and meets a bigger bird who flies. <laughs> there's like a peregrine. There's a peregrine falcon that like yeah. the moth goes and tells. And see, the professor would tell you not to worry about that stuff too much. What letter is that, Chad? Is it letter 156 where it, about about uh, the ring being destroyed at Numenor or whether uh, Sauron had the ring in Numenor? What is the letter where Tolkien says, no, don't worry about that too much. Right. Don't worry about yeah. that stuff too much. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the, don't worry about the ring escaping the the downfall of Numenor when Sauron went down with it because you don't need to be worried about how the ring got back from, with a spirit because these spirits had built the mountains. Right, right. It's it's a magical artifact imbued with the spirit's own essence. 
So it's not that unbelievable that it would somehow go back with him. I'm not worried about the uh, physical metaphysics of that, <laughs> of that issue. I worry um, about that a lot. <laughs> Chad, and I have, Chad and I have a lot of these conversations about speed, size of things. I mean, we, we, have, we, we talk about this a lot. Well, this is all right. This is I'm totally getting baited into this digression, but I don't care. Um, I'm going to go for it. So I always like to imagine that the ring was with Sauron, Sauron on Numenor. I know uh, um, Corey Olson says that he left it in Mordor and then went to Numenor. I always believed or imagined that he had it on him because within years of being taken to Numenor as a captive prisoner, he had become the. Uh, the highest counselor to the king and very influential on the island. That is exactly the type of thing that the ring would help him do. You know, the, the ring enhances his abilities to persuade and dominate. Not that he would really need the ring probably to persuade and dominate another mortal man, but the, the enhanced power of the ring would help him to do that in a short amount of time over a very formidable king um, like our Farazon. So I always imagine him having it with him on the island. I'm I'm not, I'm actually of the opposite opinion. My do we do we, do you want to start? I mean, we can talk about this for an hour if you so, want to start this. So, because <laughs> so, to- I'm of the opposite no, no. opinion. First of all, Tolkien said he did. Tolkien said he had it with him. No, and he the, doesn't. He doesn't say straight out does. that he had it with him. He, mm. he does. He does in the letters. He says that he has it with him. But then the only thing where he says the only the only evidence that's possible that he couldn't have it with him besides besides you know common sense right the only thing that makes you believe that he didn't have with him is because he says when he returns to mordor he took up his great ring so that makes people believe oh oh then he took it up but tolkien says that he has the ring when he's in numenor ahead of time and as far as Corey olson's thing Corey has told me before that one day he expects me to present him with an audio edited conversation of Corey arguing with Corey over whether or not something happened or didn't happen. And see, that's the thing about what Tolkien says is he says that he has the ring, but he doesn't say that he has the ring the whole time. Like he doesn't say that he took the ring to Numenor and he kept it with him the whole time. Like, so there is some, there, there is some wiggle room there. I have thought before, you know, it's possible because he turned, remember he told turned a whole bunch of people to his side when he was there they became the black Numenorians, right? The ones right. who, who founded the Corsairs and all that kind of stuff. So I had thought before, before I saw Tolkien say, you shouldn't be wondering about how he got this ring back to the mainland. Before I saw that, I used to think, okay, he must've like smuggled the thing back on these ships or something. Because you remember that before the downfall of Numenor, the Druidine, all the Drugs, the mm-hmm. the Gonbury Gon type people, they had already left. They knew something right. was coming, and so when he was sending these Black Numenorians back to the mainland, I used to think, okay, he must have like found somebody trustworthy that eventually was going to become a Nazgul or something and given it to one of them. But you know, I kind of abandoned that thought whenever I saw Tolkien say, "Don't worry about how he got it back over there," you know. Because of because of the fact that the Ainur built the world anyway, and they weren't in bodies then. I want so badly to continue this thread, but we're approaching the one hour mark, and it's time to get into our second scene. <laughs> hey everyone, this is Michael from the future. As you can probably tell, Jen and I had a great time chatting with the Chads. So great, in fact, that we ended up talking for several hours. So we decided to turn what was intended to be one episode into a few. So that's going to do it for this week. Please come back next week as we continue talking about many meetings and the Council of Elrond. If you like what we're doing here, please like, subscribe, share us on social media, share us with your friends. It really is the best way for you to support the show and help others to find us. And with 2021 winding down, we just want to take a second to thank you all so much for your support this year. We started the podcast this year just wanting to talk about Lord of the Rings, and we didn't know what to expect, and we have been blown away by all the support and love we've gotten out there from all of you. We're so excited about what 2022 will bring, and mostly we're just excited to keep doing what we're doing, talking about Lord of the Rings and talking with all of you. So goodbye 2021. Hello 2022. Thank you all. May the hair on your toes never fall out.